Mike Pence said attacks against the FBI must stop. Now, obviously, he's not talking about physical violence, which is not and, of course, should not happen. Former Vice President Pence is insisting you must stop criticizing the FBI, no matter what they do. If the FBI breaks the law, you must not criticize them. If they violate people's constitutional rights, you must not criticize them. If they cook up schemes to try to entrap innocent people, Mike Pence says you have to stop criticizing the FBI. Well, I'm here to tell you, Mike Pence is flat out wrong. The FBI is hopelessly corrupt and beyond redemption. Today, we present the backstory on the illegal, unconstitutional, outrageous, unprecedented raid on President Trump's home and part three of our deep dive into the FBI's history of dishonest dealings. We continue to prove once and for all the FBI must be dismantled on this edition of the all-new Doc Washburn Show. Welcome to the Voice of the Resistance with Doc Washburn. We're the show that pushes back against the Uniparty and lets you in on the news that that traditional talk radio is all too often afraid to talk about. This is episode 223 of the all-new Doc Washburn Show. It's Wednesday, August 24th, 2022. Just so you understand where I'm coming from, I was fired by one of the biggest radio companies in America, Cumulus Media, simply because I refused their vaccine mandate. More evidence comes out all the time. A lot of people are having serious negative reactions to the vaccines. Also, I will never call Joe Biden president because it's obvious the last U.S. presidential election was stolen. I'll never pretend a man can become a woman, and I will never forget about the January 6th political prisoners most Republican politicians refuse to even mention. And August 8th, 2022, the day the Biden regime's secret police conducted an unprecedented and unconstitutional raid on the home of a former president of the United States is a day that will live in infamy. So this is a really different kind of talk show. We're unmasked, uncensored, and unfiltered. If you'd like to support what we do, go to our website, docwashburn.com, and click on the button that says Become a Patron. Also, please remember to subscribe to our podcast so you don't miss an episode. Now, Mike Davis, former clerk for Justice Gorsuch and former vetter of federal judges for Senator Grassley when he was chairman of the Senate Judiciary Committee, is scheduled to be my guest Thursday at noon Eastern, 11 Central. He'll be giving his incisive legal analysis of the FBI's outrageous, illegal, unconstitutional raid on former President Trump's home, and I will also be asking him for advice on how we might best try to get our country out of this mess. That's Mike Davis on the Doc Washburn Show, Thursday, August 25th, noon Eastern, 11 Central. Also later this week, I will give you the details of President Trump's lawsuit against Hillary Clinton, the Democrat National Committee, the DNC Services Corporation, the Perkins Coy Law Firm, Attorney Michael Sussman, Attorney Mark Elias, Congresswoman Debbie Wasserman Schultz, 
Charles Halliday Dolan Jr., National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan, former National Security Advisor John Podesta, Robbie Mook, Philip Raines, Fusion GPS, Glenn Simpson, Peter Fritch, Nellie Orr, Bruce Orr, Orbis Business Intelligence Limited, Christopher Steele, Igor Danchenko, New Star Incorporated, Rodney Jaffe, James Comey, Peter Strunk, Lisa, K, Lisa Page, Kevin Kleinsmith, Andrew McCabe, and a whole lot of other people. Do you realize that Donald J. Trump is suing all these folks? Have you heard about this anywhere? Well, just stay tuned. You'll hear about it on the Doc Washburn Show later this month. All right, now, pardon me, later this week. You don't have to wait till later this month. Later this week. Now, let me start with the excellent Margot Cleveland. She's over the Federalist.com. Article entitled, Records Suggest a Backbench Bureaucrat's Partisan Grievance Spurred the FBI's Nakedly Political Raid on Trump. You want to know how this whole thing got started? You're about to find out. Let me share this with you. And the subtitle is, The Purpose of the Grand Jury Investigation and Raid on Mar-a-Lago Was Not to Get Documents, But to Get Donald Trump. All right, strap yourself in. She says, last week's raid, by the way, this was written on August 15th, so a little over a week ago. Last week's raid on Trump's Mar-a-Lago home represented the culmination of a criminal investigation pushed by a partisan bureaucrat who called January 6, 2021, the absolute worst day of his life. And while since August 8th, the country has focused on the FBI's raid of Trump's personal residence, seeing that as a crossing of the Rubicon, the die was cast this spring when the DOJ went to the grand jury about Trump's presidential records. Reporting by the New York Times and Washington Post, some from months ago, when pieced together and considered in tandem with past practices related to presidential and other governmental records, reveals this reality. The relevant reporting started no later than February of this year when the Washington Post broke the news that the National Archives and Records Administration confirmed in a statement issued by then-archivist of the United States, David S. Ferriero, yeah, F-E-R-R-I-E-R-O, that in January 2022, National Archives had retrieved from Mar-a-Lago 15 boxes of presidential records, which according to sources included items such as mementos, gifts, and letters. National Archives added that Trump representatives were continuing the search for additional records. Months, la- months later, in interviewing the then-recently-retired Ferriero, Washington Post detailed the origins of the retrieval of the 15 boxes. At the conclusion of Trump's presidency, the Post reported Ferriero was told by the White House Office of Records Management about a group of boxes in the White House residence that should go to the archives. According to Ferriero, quoting now, 
As we were moving materials from the White House just before the inauguration, those boxes hadn't shown up yet. The retired archivist then explained how he remembered watching the Trumps leave the White House and getting off in the helicopter that day and someone carrying a white banker box and saying to myself, what the hell's in that box? According to Ferriero, that began a whole process of trying to determine whether any records had not been turned over to the archives. Now, during the spring of 2021, the National Archives reportedly discovered some high-profile documents missing, such as correspondence with North Korean's leader Kim Jong-un that Trump once described as love letters. Also, the letter President Obama had left for Trump and a map of Hurricane Dorian that had been altered with a black marker by Trump. And according to Ferriero's congressional testimony, National Archives began talking with Trump's people right after they left office about so-called presidential records. Okay. At this point, an aside is necessary to understand the concept of presidential records and the National Archives' involvement. First of all, the Presidential Records Act provides the backstory. That's the act that provides the documents created or received by the president or his immediate staff, such as memos, letters, notes, emails, and other written communications related to a president's official duties, constitute presidential records and must be preserved. The act further declares that the United States shall retain complete ownership, possession, and control of presidential records. And at the conclusion of a president's term in office, the archivist of the United States assumes responsibility for the custody, control, and preservation of and access to the presidential records. Now, in contrast, personal records remain the property of the outgoing president and include diaries, journals, or personal notes not prepared or utilized for or circulated or communicated in the course of transacting government business. Likewise, materials relating to private political associations or relating exclusively to the president's own election to the office of the presidency and not related to the duties of the president qualify as personal records and not as presidential records. National Archives maintained that letters with North Korean leader Kim Jong-un and other documents qualified as presidential records that the United States owned. And by working with Trump representatives, National Archives arranged to retrieve from Mar-a-Lago 15 boxes of presidential papers in January 2022. Next, the leaks began, and so does the witch hunt. As already noted, Ferriero confirmed for the press in February 2022 that the 15 boxes of material had been retrieved by the National Archives. Then, in a February 10, 2022 article, the Washington Post reported two significant leaks. First, that within the material returned to National Archives were documents marked as classified. And second, that Archives officials asked the Justice Department to look into the matter. 
By March 2022, National Archives was, was reportedly in consultation with the Justice Department. And by April 7th, according to leaks to the Washington Post, the DOJ had launched an investigation into Trump related to the 15 boxes of material retrieved by the National Archives. Another DOJ leaker reportedly told Newsweek that in late April 2022, a federal grand jury began deliberating whether there was a violation of the Presidential Records Act or whether President Trump unlawfully possessed national security information and that the grand jury concluded there had been a violation of the law. Further leaks reveal that the DOJ, by springtime, had issued a subpoena to Trump purporting to seek additional documents that it believed may have been in his possession. The grand jury reportedly also issued subpoenas to obtain surveillance footage from Mar-a-Lago, including views from outside the storage room where Trump has stored documents from his presidency. According to the New York Times, in response to the grand jury subpoenas, a top counterintelligence official for the Justice Department met with Trump's lawyers on June 3rd at Mar-a-Lago and reportedly left with additional material marked classified. Leakers also claimed in the latest of the ever-changing justifications for the raid that around the same time as a visit to Trump's Florida home, one of his lawyers provided a declaration attesting that all the material marked classified in the boxes had been turned over. Then, after a confidential human source reportedly told the FBI that Trump continued to hide classified documents, even providing the location of those documents, according to two senior government officials, which of course are unnamed, the DOJ moved to obtain the search warrant. All right, next. The word classified, that's a red herring. Shortly after news broke of the raid, and as the public backlash to the apparent political targeting of a former president of the United States began to swell, DOJ leakers took to their PR teams at the New York Times and Washington Post to spin the search as a drastic response to a dire problem. Trump's supposed possession of documents about nuclear secrets. The Washington Post's lead in its coverage of the developing story, said classified documents relating to nuclear weapons were among the items FBI agents sought in a search of former President Donald Trump's Florida residence on Monday, according to people familiar with the investigation. New York, the New York Times repeated the storyline, claiming Trump was seeking to deflect attention from Reports that the classified documents he had kept in his Florida home might have contained materials related to nuclear weapons. Now, rather than prompt the public's concern, however, the country, whose memory of the New York Times and Washington Post peddling of the Russia collusion hoax remains fresh, ridiculed the so-called justification that Trump had stolen nuclear secrets. That's no justification for the raid. country didn't believe it. The focus of coverage, nonetheless, remained on the supposed classified nature of the materials stored in Mar-a-Lago, especially after the release of the inventory list 
that documented the seizing of classified documents. Now, Trump and his defenders countered these claims by stressing that as president, he had declassified all the documents he had removed from the White House, something within his constitutional authority as commander-in-chief. However, a close look at the search warrant reveals the classification question is a red herring. None of the three criminal statutes relied upon by the DOJ to justify the search even required the material sought to be classified. Specifically, the search warrant specified that the property to be seized included all physical documents and records constituting evidence, contraband, fruits of crime, or other items illegally possessed in violation of 18 U.S. Code 793, 2017, or 1591. Now, material need not be classified to fall within any of those criminal code provisions. Rather, for instance, rather, for instance, under Section 793, also called the Espionage Act, it is a crime for a person with unauthorized possession of documents or information relating to the national defense that the possessor has reason to believe could be used to the injury of the United States or to the advantage of any foreign nation to willfully retain the same and fail to deliver it to the officer or employee of the United States entitled to receive it. Now, documents and information could be related to the national defense without being classified. And an intelligence community desperate to convict Donald Trump of something could easily frame the material as providing an advantage to a foreign nation. Further, given the Presidential Records Act, Trump arguably has unauthorized possession of the material, although if it is a copy, the issue is dicier. The second statute cited in the search warrant, Section 2017, criminalizes the removal, destruction, or concealing of government records, which would include presidential papers. And again, that provision of the criminal code does not require the documents to be classified. And the third statute, Section 1591, addresses obstruction of justice. But before moving there, the warrant's reference to Section 2017, read in light of the leaker's comments, proves informative to understand the latest targeting of Trump. Now stick with me, because there's going to be a payoff on this story. Newsweek Magazine's so-called exclusive report on the supposed confidential human source that prompted the search of Mar-a-Lago claimed that the road to the raid began a year and a half ago when in the transition from the Trump administration to that of Joe Biden, there were immediate questions raised by the National Archives and Records Administration as to whether the presidential records turned over to the federal agency for historical preservation were complete or not. Well, it sounds like that Ferriero guy might be the uh, confidential human source there. Or at least the leaker to Newsweek. Okay, the next section is entitled, Leakers Gave Away the Game. 
The DOJ leaker reportedly told Newsweek the National Archives believed that the former White House was stonewalling and continued to possess unauthorized material and that the National National Archives then, earlier this year, asked the Justice Department to investigate. The same leaker claimed a grand jury had concluded that there had been a violation of the law. Further, according to Newsweek magazine and its so-called intelligence source, the affidavit to obtain the search warrant contained abundant and persuasive detail that Trump continued to possess the relevant records in violation of federal law and that investigators had sufficient information to prove that those records were located at Mar-a-Lago, including the detail that they were contained in a specific safe in a specific room. Now, putting aside for a moment the DOJ's reliance on the whole idea of obstruction of justice, this leak reveals the raid of Mar-a-Lago resulted from the criminal investigation into Trump's compliance with the Presidential Records Act prompted by the National Archives under the leadership of then-archivist David Ferriero. And for three reasons, Americans can safely conclude the DOJ's launching of a criminal investigation and its use of a grand jury to target former President Trump was a political witch hunt. First of all, National Archives handled its discovery of Hillary Clinton's violation of the equivalent Federal Records Act vastly differently. In September 2015, in response to questions from Senator Chuck Grassley, Republican of Iowa, about former Secretary of State Hillary Clinton's use of a non-governmental email account, National Archivist David Ferriero informed Grassley of the National Archives' normal response to allegations of unauthorized destruction or removal of federal records. He said, and I quote, National Archives will write a letter to the agency asking it to report back to National Archives within 30 days and open a case file on the matter, unquote. So at that point, National Archives and the agency will work together to recover any missing documents or to reconstruct them if needed. National Archives then explained that upon learning of Hillary's use of a non-governmental email account in March 2015, it immediately acted in accordance with our regulations by sending a letter to the State Department setting off the process described above. Significantly, while noting that the use of the non-government email may result in a separate DOJ investigation in the case of Hillary. Quote, National Archives has not initiated an investigation of Secretary Clinton's email practices. Rather, as noted above, we have been communicating with the State Department on this matter and are deferring to the State Department's review and any other agencies conducting investigations, unquote. Now, in contrast, in the case of Trump, National Archives referred the matter of documents stamped classified to the DOJ, which promptly opened an investigation into Trump 
and used a grand jury to subpoena Trump and others. Numerous public statements by Ferriero, who at the time of the referral to the DOJ, actually served as the country's archivist, suggest a partisan goal underlying the referral. First was Ferriero's bizarre overreaction to, quote, watching the Trumps leaving the White House and getting off in the helicopter, unquote, while someone was, quote, carrying a white banker box, what the hell's in the box, unquote, Ferriero claimed he asked himself. Then there was his admission that he decided to retire at the end of April 2022, quote, because he is worried about the political future, it's important to me that this administration replace me, unquote. He added, quote, I'm concerned about what's going to happen in 2024. I don't want it left to the unknowns of the presidential election, unquote. Now, that's quite a strange statement for an archivist to make, suggesting as it does that politics matter in the performance of his role. Third, David Ferriero's comments during a post-retirement interview discussing January 6th at the Capitol suggests he holds an anti-Trump bias. Quote, On his office television, David S. Ferriero, the archivist of the United States, had watched outgoing President Donald Trump whip up the right-wing crowd near the White House, unquote. Now, this is the Washington Post report. Ferriero said he recalled watching, quote, this angry mob, really angry, angry people, unquote, and thinking to himself, quote, if these people realize what's in this building they're passing, we're at risk here, unquote. The former archivist called January 6, 2021, quote, the worst day of his tenure as the keeper of the Nationals' collective memory, the worst day of my life, the absolute worst, unquote. Now, it's not merely the National Archives referral to the DOJ and Ferriero's apparent bias that suggests a political motive, however. It's the reality that even if the documents were classified, Donald Trump has the right to access them. And the National Archives could have worked with the former president to set up a secure location for his presidential papers, which is precisely what David Ferriero and the National Archives did with Barack Obama. Oh, yes. In 2016, before President Obama left office, he rented a private facility in Hoffman Estates to serve as a storage place for his presidential papers. Hoffman Estates. Where is Hoffman Estates? Every once in a while, I'm reading a fantastic article, and there's something in the article that makes me think, all right, where's that? Okay, Hoffman Estates is a village in Illinois in the Chicago suburbs. I kind of thought Illinois, but I wasn't sure. So, 
In 2016, before President Obama left office, he rented a private facility in Hoffman Estates to serve as a storage place for his presidential papers. And by October 2016, while he was still in office, shipments of artifacts from his presidency began arriving at the suburban Chicago storage facility. Well, if I just waited another sentence, it would have told me. A year later, the Chicago Tribune reported that after the National Archives and Records Administration had worked with a former Democrat president to ship his documents to the Chicago suburb where they were stored and kept secured, Obama decided not to return a paper archive at his presidential museum, quote, meaning they would be shipped back to Washington once a decision was made on where to keep them permanently, unquote. The Obama documents, both classified and unclassified, remained in Hoffman Estates, Illinois, well into 2018, as evidenced by a letter of intent executed between David Ferriero on behalf of the National Archives Trust Fund and the Obama Foundation. Among other things, the letter of intent memorialized the Obama Foundation's agreement to transfer up to three million three hundred thousand dollars, three point three million, to the National Archives Trust Fund to support the move of classified and unclassified Obama presidential records and artifacts from Hoffman Estates to National Archives controlled facilities that conform to the agency's archival storage standards for such records and artifacts. Wow. Now, the only difference between the Hoffman Estates storage of the Obama presidential records that began in 2016 and the Mar-a-Lago storage of Trump's presidential records was that the documents were technically within the possession of the National Archives. But even though the documents were legally the property of National Archives, Obama still had the right to access the records, including the classified documents. So if upon receiving the 15 boxes of documents back from Trump, the National Archives had legitimate concerns about the security of Mar-a-Lago, a strange worry to hold given that the Secret Service must safeguard the location to protect Trump and his family, a bureaucracy committed to the country and safeguarding her artifacts would have worked to arrange for the documents to be preserved under the auspices of the National Archives' control in a location chosen by Trump, just as it had done with Barack Obama. Next section, it's the grand jury, stupid. But the presidential records were never the concern. Nor were the documents with classified markings, which remained secured along with the Trump family. The goal was always to get Trump, which is why the National Archives and Records Administration referred the matter to the Justice Department, which then used a grand jury to investigate the former President of the United States. And once the grand jury began the case under the apparent auspices of a violation of the Presidential Records Act, if the sources are to be believed, the DOJ teed up the possibility of an obstruction of justice charge 
for anything less than full cooperation in the mind of the FBI. Now, whether Trump's lawyer signed a declaration that inaccurately claimed Trump had no documents marked as classified is unknown. If so, it would appear an obstruction charge will be forthcoming, but then so will a fight over whether Trump's lawyer meant Trump had not retained any classified documents since they had all been declassified and the marking just not fixed. Or maybe that's all the declaration stated, that Trump did not possess any classified documents. An Espionage Act charge would likewise face a high hurdle given the fact that DOJ would need to establish that Trump had reason to believe the national defense information could be used to the injury of the United States or to the advantage of any foreign nation. Further, to the extent the Biden administration would seek to charge Trump with mishandling classified material, that theory would fail given Trump's absolute declassification authority. That leaves, at least at this point, the creativity of the deep state remains untapped. That leaves Section 2017, which criminalizes the removal, destruction, or concealing of government records. But Trump did not remove the records and likely did not designate the records for shipment by the General Services Administration. And even if he did, Section 2017 seeks to protect government property, and if what Trump possessed consisted of mere copies of government records, there should be no violation of this criminal provision. Given these problems with the underlying legal theories targeting a political enemy and former president of the United States with a search warrant represents an unforgivable lapse in judgment, and as for the claim that the DOJ needed to recover these vital national security documents. The shifting stories spread by leakers suggest this rationale is simply a pretext. After all, within the course of one week, the justification for the search went from nuclear secrets to classified documents to... Videos suggesting the documents were not secure to videos suggesting the Trump team was serendipitously moving the documents to a confidential human source claiming Trump continued to possess presidential records to a supposed lie by Trump's attorney that there were no documents present at Mar-a-Lago marked classified. Now, no matter the excuse provided for the raid, however, the reality remains that the Biden administration launched an unnecessary grand jury criminal investigation into Trump based on a referral from a partisan archivist and all Americans of goodwill see the obvious difference in the government's treatment of Hillary Rodham Clinton, Barack Hussein Obama, and Donald John Trump proving the purpose of the investigation was to get Trump. 
and not to get the documents. Now, that is Margot Cleveland, and she is the senior legal correspondent for The Federalist. And the article is entitled, Records Suggest a Backbench Bureaucrat's Partisan Grievance Spurred the FBI's Nakedly Political Raid on Trump. And we are just scratching the surface as we will continue with part three of our deep dive into the long history of dishonest dealings of the Federal Bureau of Investigation, once again proving beyond a shadow of a doubt that they are beyond redemption and they must be dismantled. Thank you so much to our advertisers, our friends, for making it possible for us to do the Doc Washburn Show five times a week. If you try to buy a car recently, you realize there's such a chip shortage, you may have a hard time finding what you're looking for. People I know have actually bought vehicles from hundreds of miles away from where they live. That's where Red River Your Way comes in. Red River Your Way is a big old car dealership in the middle of the USA that believes in freedom, including your freedom to buy a car, truck, van, or SUV the way you want to. You can buy online, and they'll drive it to you no matter where you are. Red River Your Way wants to make your car buying experience as easy and transparent as possible. That's why they've added technology to their website to put you in complete control of your payment options and allows you to complete the entire purchase process online. But don't worry, Red River experts are still here to help you every step of the way if you have any questions. Red River makes it so easy. As you browse their selection, you'll see each vehicle has a button that says Explore Payment Options on it. Clicking that button guides you through a few easy questions and then create personalized payment options you have complete control over. All you have to do is adjust your preferences, and all the math happens automatically so you can figure out what monthly payment works best for your budget. Red River Your Way makes car buying online easy. Your whole car buying process is completely transparent. If you want to buy a car, truck, van, or SUV, order online from the nationwide car dealer that believes in freedom, the dealer that will deliver your vehicle to your front door no matter where you live, redriveryourway.com. You will be glad you did. All right, let me ask you this. Does your financial advisor take the time to listen and get to know you? Is your financial strategy personalized for you and your family? Will your financial advisor be there as your life and financial situations change? When you work with Jonathan Presswood, he focuses on what's important to you. He uses an established process to help you achieve your unique goals, whether that's preparing for retirement, making your money last in retirement, planning your estate or inheritance, preparing for the unexpected, or anything else. Jonathan Presswood can help. Now, what should you do if you leave a job and have a 401k or other retirement plan? Or if you're getting close to retirement or already in retirement? Call my friend, Jonathan Presswood, today. He'll help you create a personalized financial strategy backed by the advice, tools, and resources to help you reach your goals. And he'll partner together with you to help your strategy stay on track no matter what life throws at you. Listen, we can all dream of having a perfect retirement, but how many of us will actually experience it? No matter where you are today, Jonathan Presswood is offering a free retirement analysis to figure out where you'd like to be and what it will take to get you there, and there's no obligation. Contact Jonathan Presswood, a financial advisor with Edward Jones Investments, today at 501-503-4844. Again, that's 
303-4844. Don't wait. Call Jonathan Presswood today at 501-303-4844. Now, if you're like me, you can't remember phone numbers, go to our website, docwashburnshow.com. Just click on the link to Jonathan Presswood at Edward Jones. Edward Jones, making sense of investing. Member SIPC. Thank you once again, Jonathan Presswood, financial advisor at Edward Jones and our friend. Thank you once again to Mitch Ward, owner of Red River Your Way and our friend. They're our advertisers, but they're also our friends, and they help us be able to do what we do here every week. All right, now, let me share with you the next collection of facts. Once again, Margot Cleveland, the Federalist, this is a shorter article. It's entitled, 10 Similarities Between the FBI's Mar-a-Lago Raid and Spygate. This came out more recently, August 17th. Subtitle, the DOJ and FBI think they can execute the same game plan they did for the last six years without the public noticing. They can't. Oh, my goodness, do I hope she's right. Here's what she says. The FBI's raid on Mar-a-Lago reveals the deep state cabal and their corrupt media partners deployed no fewer than 10 of the same trade crafts used to push the Russia collusion hoax. And with that, history is repeating itself with the same corrupt plot. Number one, a shocking storyline of Trump putting America at risk. Now, with the Russia collusion hoax, Democrats and a complicit media cartel warned the country that Trump's relationship with Russia presented a clear and present danger to America. While the reporting oscillated from Trump being too pally-wally with Vladimir Putin to Putin having some kind of leverage over Trump to Trump being a Russian agent, The narrative underlying the hoax was one that, if true, presented the public with a serious national security concern. Similarly, the hoax surrounding the search of Trump's Mar-a-Lago home rests on claimed misconduct, which, if true, would raise concerns of a dire national security crisis, like having a Russian stooge or agent in the White House, Trump keeping supposedly top-secret documents unsecured, in his Florida home, suggests a serious threat to our national security. In both cases, the seriousness of the supposed threat to America's national security seeks to justify the government's extreme measures to target Trump. Number two, the building of a narrative to support the idea that Trump's supposed misconduct created a serious risk to America. Both the Biden administration and the press quickly converged on the so-called classified materials narrative. But none of the crimes on which the Mar-a-Lago search warrant was premised involved crimes related to the illegal possession or storage of classified materials. Nonetheless, the media coverage immediately framed the raid 
as based on the presence of classified and even top-secret materials. Supposed government sources even went so far as to claim the material kept at Trump's home related to nuclear secrets. Coverage of the raid sought to further cement this narrative in the public's consciousness by quoting past public officials bemoaning Trump's disregard for American secrets. By quickly framing the raid as concerning classified materials, the bad guys hoped the public would ignore the outrageousness of a search of a former president's home. The backlash came nonetheless, but had the public understood that the fight concerned documents desired by the United States archivist, even stronger pushback would have been likely. The same scenario played out with Spygate, with the supposed standard bearers of journalism reporting Trump and his campaign's every connection to Russia to create a backdrop against which Trump would be believed to be a Russian collaborator. But, unlike Spygate, Americans have seen this show before and recognized the plot. Oh, I hope so. Number three, leaks, leaks everywhere and not a name to seek. To build their preferred narrative, the Department of Justice and the FBI began leaking like a spigot. While Attorney General Merrick Garland stoically proclaimed during his press statement that he will speak through his court filings, his underlings sowed various storylines throughout the press and always as unnamed sources. Americans saw the same scenario from 2016 on when leaks to the media revealed everything from the FISA surveillance of Carter Page to the briefing of President Donald Trump on the salacious details of the Steele dossier. The leaks then sought to further the Russian collusion storyline, and the leaks now seek to push the idea that Trump committed a crime that threatens our country's national security. Number four, same suspicious names. The names of the players involved in the Russia collusion hoax and the hoax that's going nuclear represent the fourth similarity. With the Russia collusion hoax, the New York Times and Washington Post served as the unofficial scribes for the government leakers, pushing whatever storylines best further the plots. Shortly after the news of the raid broke, the New York Times and Washington Post began running tips from unnamed government sources familiar with the investigation. Not only were the same outlets used to peddle the DOJ and FBI selected and slanted leaks, but some of the same journalists involved in the Russia hoax have been covering the raid, such as Tom Hamburger, I'm not making that name up, whose emails with Fusion GPS exposed his connection to the scandal. Then there's Representative Adam Schiff, Democrat, California, who lied to the American public about the FISA applications used to surveil Carter Page. Schiff quickly expressed concern about the so-called top-secret documents the Fed seized from Mar-a-Lago, but he remains snail-slow in apologizing for perpetuating the Russia collusion hoax. 
Number five, don't question authority. Adam Schiff also pushed another ploy used in earlier Get Trump hoaxes, namely condemning criticism of the FBI. Oh, that sounds eerily familiar. That's what uh, Mike Pence is doing these days, right? In reference to criticize of the raid of Mar-a-Lago, Schiff wrote, and I quote, The GOP's unfounded attacks on the FBI are grossly irresponsible. They'll lead only to further violence if they do not stop, unquote. Schiff's comments add to those made by FBI Director Christopher Wray and A.G. Merrick Garland, both of whom chastised those who dare call into question the FBI's integrity. The country witnessed a similar going on the offensive counter to complaints over the handling of the Russia investigation, but after four years of government officials defending the men and women of the FBI and the DOJ's handling of Crossfire Hurricane, Americans discovered the rot ran straight through to the top. So the silence them shtick seen of late is unlikely to work this time. Number six, changing narratives. Another ploy unlikely to go unnoticed by the country after living through six years of the Spygate scandal concerns the ever-changing justifications provided for the government's targeting of a political enemy. Within the course of one week, a complicit media rolled out for the feds a constantly changing series of excuses for the Rubicon crossing raid. First, the possible presence of nuclear secrets justified the raid, and then when social media mocked that theory, the press moved to the need to protect so-called classified documents. Next, the media floated the idea that videos suggested the documents were not secure and then changed the storyline again to say Trump people might be secretly moving the documents. Later came the theory that a confidential human source prompted the search, and later the rationale changed to the search being justified by a supposed lie. Trump's attorney told that there were no documents present at Mar-a-Lago Mark classified. Sound familiar? Yeah. The justification of the day routine harkens back to the changing rationales proffered to support Crossfire Hurricane. It was a tip about George Papadopoulos. Well, that and all these folks having connections to Russia. It wasn't really the Steele dossier until it was, again, the Steele dossier. But wait, the firing of FBI Director James Comey, that that needs investigation too. Nothing stood up then as a solid justification because nothing mattered but getting Trump. Everything else was a pretext. Nothing stands up to scrutiny now either. Everything's a pretext. They just want to get Trump. Number seven, court filings are too important to share. Another similarity between the hoaxes concerns the need to keep the court filings secret. In Spygate, it took years before the government released the FISA, apl- uh, the FISA applications submitted to obtain a court order to surveil Carter Page. And once released, the redactions made much of the information useless. Later, additional disclosures in the Inspector General's report on FISA abuse 
revealed that the FISA applications on which the government obtained court approval to spy on Page were replete with false representations and material omissions. Those applications proved so defective, in fact, that the government later conceded probable cause did not support the surveillance of Carter Page. In the case of the raid on Mar-a-Lago, the government similarly claims the search warrant application is too vital to be released. As a matter of law, the DOJ's position is sound. As a matter of lessons learned, the secrecy surrounding the affidavit raises serious concerns that the basis for the search of Trump's home would not withstand public scrutiny. Number eight, the return of the confidential human source. Among the leaks spread over the last couple of weeks, the most familiar one concerned the FBI's claimed use of a confidential human source. That source provided the FBI with important evidence concerning the documents stored at Mar-a-Lago and reportedly informed the government that Trump had withheld more documents than agents knew about. This reporting by the confidential human source supposedly led the FBI to move forward with a search warrant application. The Crossfire Hurricane investigation also involved the FBI's use of confidential human sources, such as Christopher Steele, Stefan Halper, and Rodney Jaffe. And that experience leaves Americans leery of the news that a confidential human source provided the intel necessary to obtain the search warrant. They're doing the same thing all over again. Last but not least, well, next to last but not least, number nine, a partisan bureaucrat with a disdain for Trump. As stories of Russia collusion began to unravel, Americans also learned of the anti-Trump sentiments shared by many of the agents on the Crossfire Hurricane team. The text exchanges between Lisa Page and Peter Strzok first woke the country to the reality that politics played a part in the probe. Later, an independent investigation into the prosecution of retired Lieutenant General Michael Flynn revealed a get-Trump attitude permeated the entire investigation put on by the FBI. While it has not yet been even two weeks, well, it has now, but it wasn't when this was written, since the FBI raided Mar-a-Lago, substantial evidence of a political motive already exists. First, we have the disparate treatment between the former Republican president and the Democrat president's son, who is under investigation and has been since 2018. Then there's the difference between the FBI's kid glove handling of Hillary Clinton and the raid use of Trump. The latter difference proves especially enlightening because both cases involved the National Archives and Records Administration. When National Archives and Records Administration, or NARA, which until late April 2022 was led by head archivist David Ferriero, learned of Hillary's use of a non-governmental email account, Ferriero did not initiate an investigation of her email practices. Instead, he communicated with the State Department on that matter, deferred the State Department's review and any other agencies, yada, yada, yada. In contrast, after the archives retrieved 15 boxes of presidential records from Mar-a-Lago and discovered some, some contained documents marked as classified, they immediately requested the DOJ investigate the matter, 
DOJ then used a grand jury to subpoena documents from Trump as well as to obtain footage from security cameras, investigative techniques never used with Hillary. That the National Archives prompted the investigation of Trump and the use of a grand jury proves especially suspect given that Ferriero led the agency at the time and later admitted to retiring to ensure President Biden... Oh, oh, oh! I apologize. And later admitted to retiring to ensure that Dementia Joe could choose his successor. Suggesting a partisan heartbeat inside the bureaucrat. Ferriero also called January 6th the worst day of his life, claimed when he saw Trump leaving the White House for the last time with a box. He asked himself what the hell's in the box. Such a response suggests a case of Trump derangement syndrome, something seen throughout the crossfire hurricane investigation, too. And number 10. Number 10. In the long list of 10 similarities between the FBI's Mar-a-Lago raid and Spygate. Number 10, a quick denial before downplaying the problem. So a 10th similarity seen between the Russian collusion hoax and the latest crusade to crush Trump involves the media's penchant for denying charges against the government only later to downplay what agents did. With Crossfire Hurricane, you saw the press denying that any spying took place on Trump or his campaign. But once it came out that the government had a confidential human source record conversations with members of the Trump campaign and that an FBI agent presented a briefing for Trump and Flynn as part of the Crossfire Hurricane investigation, the media spun the significance of those revelations by framing them as not spying. Less than two weeks into the latest investigation of Trump, the press is putting on a repeat performance as seen by the immediate denial of Trump's claim that the FBI seized his passports. But when the government admitted to taking Trump's passports by mistake, the press merely spun the story as a mistake promptly corrected. The DOJ and FBI, however, are making a bigger mistake. They continue to think They can execute the same game plan they did for the last six years without the public seeing the similarities. They can't. And the widespread backlash to the search proves Americans refuse to be fooled again. That is Margot Cleveland, the Federalist.com, in the article, Ten Similarities Between the FBI's Mar-a-Lago Raid and Spygate. All right, next. Next, there's so much. There's so much. How can I get this all in? Okay. We have the story of the kidnapping hoax of the Michigan governor and the verdicts that were handed down by the jury within the last 24 hours in Michigan. 
we got more whistleblowers coming forward against the out-of-control FBI. Oh, there's so much. There's so much. But I just got to tell you how thankful we are for our advertisers because they aren't just our advertisers. They are our friends. And they enable us to do what we do every week, five times a week on the Doc Washburn Show. Hey, I'd like to help you with some health issues. You have migraines, neck pain, back pain, vertigo, acid reflux, eczema, problems with your blood sugar, maybe even hay fever. Okay, let's do a little test. Look in the mirror. Does one eye look bigger than the other? Are your eyes off balance? Are your shoulders off balance? Look at a picture of yourself. Are you tilting your head to the left or the right instead of sitting up or standing up straight? If the answer to any of these questions is yes, you probably need to get your atlas adjusted. That's how I got rid of my migraines, neck pain, and hay fever. Let me explain to you how it works because it's the best kept secret in American healthcare. Your skull weighs anywhere from 8 to 15 pounds. It rests on the top bone of your spinal column, the atlas, which only weighs 2 ounces. So it's really easy for your atlas to get out of alignment. If it does, your whole spinal column can get kinked up like a chain, restricting your central nervous system's ability to send impulses to the rest of your body. It can affect your respiratory system, reproductive system, circulatory system, even digestive system. And yes, it can cause migraines, neck pain, back pain, acid reflux, eczema, vertigo, problems with your blood sugar. Do yourself a favor. If you're in Arkansas, call my friends at the Arkansas Upper Cervical Center 501-279-2009 for a free consultation to see if you need to get your atlas adjusted, because you probably do. If you're outside Central Arkansas, go to their website, turnmypoweron.com, and click on Find a Doctor Near You. And I sure hope you can. All right, now, I've been thinking about something. And though, by the way, again, thank you so much to... uh, Dr. J.R. Crabtree and his wife, Dr. Tanya Crabtree, they are not only our friends, our advertisers there at Arkansas Upper Cervical Center, but they've helped me so much, they've helped my wife so much, so many people that we know. So I was thinking about something. I, I saw a television commercial talking about neuropathy. Neuropathy. And um, what it can do to your um, your feet. Peripheral neuropathy, a result of damage to the nerves located outside the brain and spinal cord, peripheral nerves, and and your and your feet get messed up, and you. They get numb and tingly, and you eventually lose the feeling in your feet. Well, I'm here to tell you, the first time my wife got her atlas adjusted at the Arkansas Cervical Center, um, as we were walking out the door to the car, she said, Doc, this is crazy. I said, what? She said, well, the big toe on my left foot has felt numb and tingly for years, and now it feels normal. 
I say, good. I mean, thank God she got the treatment when she did almost six and a half years ago because if she hadn't, she probably wouldn't be able to feel her feet anymore. I mean, isn't that one of the first signs of neuropathy? Your big toe starts feeling weird, and then another toe and another toe and another toe. Anyway, she texted me that afternoon and said, Hey, Doc, I don't have my regular daily backache. A few days later, she said, hey, you know what? I haven't had a headache since I got my atlas adjusted. I said, how often are you used to having headaches? She said, every day. Anyway, um, turnmypoweron.com. Enough said. Okay. So, John Solomon. John Solomon was on uh, Charlie Kirk's show, Real American Voice. Um, And John Solomon said that the White House actually began the investigation that led to this horrendous, unconstitutional raid of Mar-a-Lago. So I'm sure the archivist at National Archives, we share that with you, I'm sure he wanted to do it. Well, the White House also, let's check this out. Hey, they tried to jump the fence on this. The normal process would be you drop a grand jury subpoena on President Trump. He decides if he's going to comply. If he contests for executive privilege, you go to court. You let the judge work it out. The FBI decided they wanted to jump the fence on this. What they wanted to do was they wanted to get ahead of this and take the privilege off the table by having the current president, Joe Biden, waive the privilege for the former president, even though it covers conversations that when Trump was in president. So uh, they jumped the fence. They try to cut corners on this. What you see at this is at the ignition point of this investigation. This uh, investigation is ignited in April of this year, the Justice Department, the White House for Joe Biden, and the National Archives are all working together with the FBI. And the first decision Joe Biden makes that's consequential is, I'm going to let the National Archives send the materials of my predecessor, Donald Trump, to the FBI to start a criminal investigation. That's the first thing he does. Then the um, uh, Justice Department and the FBI come back and say, listen, we got this problem. President Trump's probably going to claim executive privilege over these documents. We need you to waive it. And President Biden tells his counsel, I waive it. If the National Archives feels it's okay to send it over, they can waive the privilege on my behalf and send it over, and that's what happens. Right after that process is done, what does the Justice Department do? They launch a grand jury. They then send grand jury subpoenas to the uh, president, which are executed in late May, and then there's a voluntary visit on June 3rd. And then after all that, they go and they escalate to DEFCON 2 now. Now they go and they uh, execute a search warrant in uh, August. All the while... The president, former president, Donald Trump, is communicating, I want to cooperate. I have executive privilege claims I'm worried about. Can we have a court get involved in this? And the Justice Department, with Joe Biden's blessing, is blowing past that. Take that history. Now remember what was said on the podium in the White House the day the um, uh, raid occurred. We don't know anything about this. The Justice Department matters. This was a White House matter, and, and the White House was involved in the ignition point where this investigation started, and they took away the former president's best legal defense, or one of his legal defenses, executive. 
executive privilege. Don't you hate it when <laughs> when you got a great sound bite going there and they cut off the last word? Took it away, executive privilege. Yep. They sure did. So the White House, which claimed, hey, we didn't know anything about anything, they were working hand in glove with the National Archives and the FBI and the DOJ. Absolutely. Absolutely. Ben Whedon over at justinnews.com says another slew of whistleblowers have come forward with misconduct claims against the FBI. Following the Bureau's raid on former President Trump's Florida State FBI field offices in Miami, Salt Lake City, Buffalo, and Newark, face accusations that their upper management coerced agents to sign false affidavits, inflated terrorism caseloads to improve their apparent performance, engaged in illicit sexual activities, or concealed those of others, according to the Washington Times. Yep. One FBI whistleblower said in a letter to U.S. Representative Louis Gohmert, Republican of Texas, the House Judiciary Committee, quote, The FBI is completely out of control, and its culture and structure need to change. Not only is the political bias completely out of control, And disgustingly obvious, the FBI knows they will not be held accountable for their illegal behavior and misconduct, unquote. Ain't that the truth? I keep telling you they must be dismantled. Prior to the FBI's raid on Trump's estate, a string of whistleblowers had come forward with accusations of political bias against senior FBI officials. The Washington field office which sent the agents to Florida to raid Trump's estate, was facing its own set of allegations. Following the raid, Wisconsin Republican Senator Ron Johnson put put out a call for FBI whistleblowers to come forward with misconduct concerns. Ohio Republican Representative Jim Jordan said 14 whistleblowers had contacted his, his office following the raid. Now, one whistleblower said the senior agents running the field offices face pressure to increase the number of caseloads each year due to the way the Bureau evaluates their performance and that this has led to illicit practices. A whistleblower at the FBI Buffalo office said it's basically a report card for him, so at the end of his two-year term, As a special agent in charge, he gets moved to a better position down in Washington, and everything focuses around his metrics. You have to have so many terrorism cases per year in your office, or else you fail. Former assistant director of the FBI Counterterrorism Division and executive assistant director of the National Security Branch, Jill Sanborn, faced a similar accusation earlier this month that she had improperly classified cases as domestic violent extremists to support a Biden administration narrative that such cases were the superlative threat facing the nation. Had you heard about that? Kurt Suzdek, a former FBI agent and whistleblower who now legally represents others, 
told the Washington Times similar cases occur nationwide, especially around the holidays. He said every Thanksgiving and Christmas, there's a number of field offices and a special agent in charge picks somebody for everybody to follow because it helps them with their metrics. So they pick somebody to scrutinize, often without merit, from wherever. And that's the bad guy you need to follow and put your assets on. The former agent dubbed the target as a Turkey Day terrorist. Shusdeck went on to discuss claims by clients at the Salt Lake City office that the agents there faced pressure to sign false or misleading affidavits. He said if your affidavit kind of mischaracterizes something, agents shouldn't be pressured to sign. They should be pressured to sign correct and truthful affidavits. He also said you have to have so many terrorism cases per year in your office or else you fail. So they would come to us and say things like, open up a case. I don't care if it's got merit or not, just open it up. We only have nine, and we need ten for me to pass. How about them apples? That is Ben Whedon over at justinnews.com. Article entitled, More Whistleblowers Coming Forward Against Out-of-Control FBI. Now, let me get to let me get to Julie Kelly over in American Greatness because she's got the goods on what has been going on in Michigan, and this is um, this is bad stuff. So, her article from Monday, August 22nd, is entitled, Where is Stephen D'Antuono? And it's over at amgreatness.com. She says, A few days after the Capitol protests on January 6, 2021, a tough-talking FBI chief with a Boston accent promised the American people the Bureau would spare no resource in hunting down everyone and anyone involved in the four-hour disturbance that day. Stephen M. D'Antuono, newly appointed head of the Washington, D.C. FBI field office, gave the public a stern warning during a January 12, 2021 press conference at the Department of Justice. He said, and I quote, the FBI will leave no stone unturned. This is a 24-7, full-bore, extensive operation. As Directive Ray says, the FBI does not do easy, unquote. D'Antuono bragged that his agency has a long memory and a broad reach. Agents from, 30, from 56 FBI field offices across the country, quote, We'll be knocking on your door if we find out you are part of the criminal activity at the Capitol, unquote. He urged people to turn in their co-workers, their their neighbors, their relatives, if they had information that could help the FBI in its dragnet. Turns out his comments weren't just Beantown-style braggadocio. 
More than 850 Americans since then have been investigated, arrested, and charged for mostly nonviolent offenses. Related to the January 6th protest, armed FBI agents have conducted early morning raids at homes across the country using military-style vehicles to batter in front doors while traumatizing families, small children, and neighbors in the process. It is a crusade of fear and terror meant to reinforce Dan Tuono's threats that those who dare to demonstrate against the fraudulent election of Joe Biden that day will pay a hefty price. Nearly 20 months later, Dan Tuono's office continues to announce new arrests. And and it's not just Trump voters who face Dan Tuono's wrath. His agents publicly arrested Peter Navarro, a former Trump White House advisor, at Reagan National Airport in June on contempt of Congress charges. Navarro said FBI agents placed him in handcuffs and leg irons. even though he lives next door to FBI headquarters in Washington. After Steve Bannon, a longtime Trump confidant, was convicted on those same charges in July, Dan Tuono boasted in the Justice Department press release how it was a great day for democracy. Here's the quote. The tenets of our government rely upon citizens adhering to the established rule of law, lawful tools such as subpoenas and other legal orders, are critical in our system of government. Mr. Bannon was found guilty of contempt by a jury of his peers for his choice to ignore a lawful subpoena, unquote. D'Antuono's agents also led the raid of Mar-a-Lago on August 8th. Now, which is where the intersection of Dan Tuono's conduct at the FBI gets a bit tricky, if not shady as hell. The day after Dan Tuono's agents traveled from D.C. all the way down to Palm Beach to ransack Donald Trump's residence and absconded with, among other items, the former president's passports, a federal judge in Grand Rapids, Michigan, began jury selection in the retrial of two men accused of conspiring to kidnap Michigan Governor Gretchen Whitmer in 2020. A jury in April could not reach a verdict in the case against Adam Fox and Barry Croft, but jurors acquitted their two co-defendants after defense attorneys successfully argued their clients had been framed by the FBI. The FBI field office, primarily responsible for running the entrapment scheme, was in Detroit. At the time, headed by none other than... Stephen M. D'Antuono. Unlike his public self-praise for the FBI's role in the January 6th investigation, however, D'Antuono has been uncharacteristically mum about about what the government considers its biggest domestic terror investigation in recent history. That's because it wasn't an investigation, it was a setup. No fewer than a dozen FBI undercover agents and informants worked at the direction of FBI officials and numerous field offices to engineer the scam. 
Agents with D'Antuono's office in Detroit hired and handled the lead informant, a man named Dan Chappell, to stitch the group of alleged kidnappers together over a seven-month period beginning in early 2020. Chappell, along with his FBI collaborators, organized meetings and excursions, paid for travel expenses and dining, created a fake militia and Facebook page to lure targets into the trap, and encouraged the targets to discuss violent plans for Whitmer and other politicians. Their targets were often high on marijuana, but that didn't stop the FBI informants and undercover agents from recording at least a 1,000 hours of mostly stoned conversations to try to produce evidence. For his stint with the FBI, Big Dan Chappell was paid roughly $60,000 more than he made in one year working as a truck driver for the FBI. Another FBI informant is a convicted felon several times over. A female informant broke FBI protocol by actually sleeping in the same hotel room with Barry Croft, her target. Both informants were paid nearly $10,000 each. Two undercover agents out of the Detroit office pretended to be a couple to develop a friendship with Fox and his girlfriend at the time. When the FBI realized, despite their best efforts, the hodgepodge group still refused to propose anything close to a doable plan to abduct Governor Gretchen Whitmer and take her by boat to the middle of Lake Michigan, the FBI introduced a new undercover agent from Michigan to act as an explosives expert and offer to sell bomb-making material to the group. Under the nickname Red, he showed the group a video made by the FBI of an exploding vehicle to convince the group of his credibility. Before the arrests were made, on October 7, 2020, an FBI investigator working out of the Flint Satellite Office signed the original criminal complaint in the case. And a week later, FBI Director Christopher Wray promoted Dan Suono to take over the FBI office in Washington, D.C. As Darren Beatty recently asked, why? Out of 56 other field office supervisors, did Ray choose Dan Tuono? And why was Dan Tuono promoted just a few months before January 6th, an event bearing many striking similarities, including fake militias and attempts to, quote, storm the Capitol, unquote, to the, to the Whitmer fednapping. D'Antuono's fingerprints are all over this scandal. Regardless of whether the jury again returns with a deadlocked verdict, they didn't, or even a conviction, they did, D'Antuono needs to be as forthcoming about his role with what happened as he is with the January 6th investigation. Two innocent men spent 18 months in prison before they were exonerated by a jury. D'Antuono must be held accountable for that. If Fox and Croft are acquitted, demanding a public reckoning takes on even greater urgency. The great irony here is that if the jury finds Fox and Croft not guilty, one contributing factor might be how D'Antuono's raid of Trump's home further torched the credibility of the FBI, particularly in places like western Michigan, where jurors now deliberate their fate, and perhaps D'Antuono's too. That's Julie Kelly 
at American Greatness, the article entitled, Where is Stephen D'Antuono? Now, that was before... That was before the verdict came in. Okay? Now, the verdict we have the next day, August 23rd, by Julie Kelly at amgreatness.com. Two men convicted in second Whitmer fednapping trial. And here's what she says. A federal jury today convicted two men charged with conspiring to kidnap Michigan Governor Gretchen Whitmer in 2020, the verdict is a much-needed win for the regime in a case the Justice Department considers one of its most important domestic terror investigations in decades. Earlier this year, a jury failed to reach a verdict on Adam Fox and Barry Croft Jr., and the government immediately announced prosecutors would seek another trial. Both were found guilty of federal kidnapping and weapons of mass destruction charges, and Croft was found guilty of unlawful firearms possession. Jurors heard testimony from several FBI experts and investigators during the eight-day trial at the Gerald R. Ford Federal Courthouse in Grand Rapids. Croft, Fox, and four others were arrested in October 2020 for their alleged Participation in the shocking plot resulting in national news coverage just a few weeks before Election Day 2020. In April of this year, a jury acquitted two men, Brandon Caserta and Daniel Harris, on all charges after their attorneys successfully argued the men had been framed by the FBI. Two other defendants, Caleb Franks and Ty Garbin, pleaded guilty and testify before the government at both trials. Controversy shrouded the second trial. Mark Totten, the newly appointed U.S. Attorney for the Western District of Michigan, the office prosecuting the case, recused himself in July without explanation. Totten had served as Governor Whitmer's general counsel for almost three years before Joe Biden nominated him to the new post. Legal observers bristled at the one-day jury selection process handled almost exclusively, almost exclusively by U.S. District Judge Robert Jonker, who also provided over the first trial. On the first day of testimony, defense attorneys informed the court that one juror was potentially compromised for telling co-workers that he, quote, had already decided the case and intended to ensure a particular result at the conclusion of the trial, unquote. Judge Jonker met privately with the juror and refused to allow either prosecutors or defense counsel from participating in the meeting. He ordered all related filings to remain under seal. Uh, Something's funky here. Judge Jonker repeatedly scolded Gibbons and Blanchard, the two defense attorneys, for what he viewed as wasting the jury's time on so-called crap lines of questioning. Wow! Before the testimony of government witnesses last Wednesday, Judge Jonker took the unprecedented step of limiting the amount of time for cross-examination. That's unheard of. 
Attorney Blanchard accused Judge Jonker of openly favoring prosecutors while frequently interjecting and interrupting defense counsel. On August 17th, after the jury had been dismissed for the day, defense attorney Blanchard told Judge Jonker, limiting us is unfair and it's unconstitutional and it doesn't aid the jury in the search for the truth. It's creating a perception of how this case ends. Justice Department also sought a narrower definition of entrapment, essentially asking Judge Jonker to make it harder for the jury to conclude the defendants were set up by the FBI. The case largely centered on accusations of a wide-ranging FBI entrapment operation involving the use of numerous FBI handlers, undercover agents, and informants over a seven-month period. It appears the jury was not convinced this time that the FBI played an instrumental role. Christopher Gibbons, attorney for Fox, told the jury during closing arguments Monday morning, let the government know this is not what a fair trial looks like in America. Do not endorse or reward this type of behavior. It's time to end this debacle, and it is time to restore Adam's freedom. Joshua Blanchard, public defender for Croft, noted the government collected a 1,000 hours of recorded conversations between FBI assets and defendants, but played less than two hours of clips for the jury. One clip was only four seconds long. Blanchard said during his closing, the FBI doesn't exist, it should not exist, to make people look like terrorists when they aren't. Remind you of the whistleblowers? He said, this whole thing has been a big FBI charade. This isn't Russia. This isn't how our country works. The defense condemned what they described as untruthful testimony by FBI agents and the key informant, Big Dan Chapel, an Iraq war veteran and mail hauler for the U.S. Postal Service who was hired by the FBI in March 2020 to infiltrate an online group of Second Amendment advocates also opposed to Michigan's lockdown policies. Big Dan Chapel, partnering with at least a dozen FBI informants and undercover agents, coordinated field training and surveillance excursions to lure the targets into the trap. Encrypted group chats created by Chapel fed information directly to his FBI handlers working out of the Detroit FBI field office at the time, known as Big Dan to the government's targets. Chapel gradually stitched the group together and specifically solicited Fox, who at the time was living in the dilapidated cellar of a vacuum repair shop in a Grand Rapids strip mall. During two days of testimony last week, Chapel admitted He offered Fox a credit card with a $5,000 limit at least four times and suggested Fox could use the card to purchase weaponry to execute the kidnapping scheme. Fox refused to accept the cards. Fox and Chapel communicated daily for nearly four months, sometimes several times a day. The government compensated Big Dan Chapel roughly $60,000 in cash and reimbursements or personal items, including a laptop, computer, smartwatch, and new tires for his vehicle.
In December 2020, two months after the caper ended, the FBI gave Chapel an envelope containing over $23,000. Blanchard accused the FBI of allowing Chapel to violate FBI rules by advancing the alleged conspiracy and taking an oath as a commanding officer in an FBI-created militia. Five FBI informants were given the task of surveilling Croft, who has been on the FBI's radar since 2019 for so-called anti-government comments on social media. During an event in Wisconsin, Jenny Plunk, the primary FBI informant assigned to Croft, shared a hotel room with her target, like overnight. When the group began to splinter in late summer amid concerns over Croft's wild talk, Jenny Plunk's FBI handler urged her to remind urged her to remind the others of Croft's value. FBI Special Agent Christopher Long texted to Plunk on August 10th of 2020, show them they were brought together by Croft and he has good ideas. Keep working to solve the differences in the group. For her services, gee, I wonder what some of those services were. Plunk was paid at least $8,000. With no proposal to kidnap and assassinate Governor Whitmer by that point, the FBI accelerated its operation by introducing another undercover FBI agent to act as an explosives expert and convince the group to purchase materials to build a bomb. Agent Timothy Bates, known as Red, met with the government's targets in Michigan on September 12, 2020, where he showed a video of a vehicle being blown up by an explosive device. Video was produced by the FBI. Bates admitted during testimony last week the case team of FBI assets met the night before to map out plans to drive the targets to Governor Whitmer's remote vacation cottage on Birch Lake, the purported scene of the crime. Bates brought night vision equipment and two-way radios to hand out as props, all supplied by the FBI. It is unclear at this point whether Gibbons and Blanchard will appeal. Well, I hope they do. Their clients face life in prison. That is the great Julie Kelly over at amgreatness.com. Article entitled, Two Men Convicted in Second Whitmer Fednapping Trial. Man, oh man, oh man. What a wicked web we weave when first we practice to save. Well, I I guess it's that time. Hit it, Brian. We interrupt this program to bring you a special report. It's the Doc Washburn Show Tweet of the Day. Brought to you by Red River Your Way, RedRiverYourWay.com. Big old car dealership in the middle of the USA. The beliefs in freedom, including your freedom to buy the car, truck, van, or SUV of your choice. The way you want to online. And have it delivered to your front door anywhere in the continental United States of America. All right. Now, our tweet of the day today is actually a thread of tweets. It's just amazing. 
I don't know what the guy's real name is, but he goes by Gitabushi. And his Avi on his Twitter looks like one of those, um, one of those little cartoon animals in the late 90s. Got to catch them all. Pikachu and all of them. Anyway, that's what it looks like. He says, I've sort of been thinking about why there's so much resistance to the idea that Biden won only because Democrats cheated in the 2020 election. And I think it comes down to one word. The resistance, even thinking that they might have stolen the election, comes down to one word. Unthinkable. Meaning, some people literally don't want to think about the implications of a national election being corrupted by deliberate action in order to take illicit control of the nation. Some people can't think about it. Some people just don't want to think about it. As if Democrats corrupting presidential election process is some special Rubicon that if we cross it, the world as we know it ends and things can never be the same, which of course it is, which is why a bunch of people don't want to think about it. Too many of these people have their whole lives tied up in the current system, trust in the current system. If Democrats are able to corrupt a national election in enough states, enough districts to illicitly seize the office of the president, they would have to act, and they don't want to act. People are lazy. People are good at lying to themselves. Some cheating's okay as long as it's on the margins. As long as they don't admit Democrats stole an election, they don't have to make any effort to prevent Democrats from stealing another one. They don't have to stand up and get criticized by the National Democrat propaganda machine in the news media. They don't have to call out the Democrats they consider friends. They don't have to use their brain to figure out how to stop cheating. They make the effort to put those into laws and standards and guidelines and then put in all the tedious work to sell those changes to legislature and to the voters in the face of Democrat counterattacks. So I get it. Democrats winning the presidency through fraud, deception, cheating, and unconstitutional changes to election policy is unthinkable. The only thing is we're already well into unthinkable territory. Democrats refuse to say that only women can get pregnant then they turn around and prove they know what a woman is when abortion is restricted. But they refuse to reconcile that contradiction. Nothing and no one can make them face reality on this. Unthinkable just 10 years ago. A U.S. ambassador was murdered due to negligence from the Secretary of State at the time. The military was ordered to stand down and not attempt to rescue. The president wasn't even awake or making decisions during this crisis. Unthinkable, but it happened. The Secretary of State took bribes 
from foreign nations based on her position as Secretary of State to build up a war chest for her eventual presidential campaign. Unthinkable. A president used commercial email services to conduct official business so that the communications would not be in federal records. All his cabinet followed suit. That's Obama, by the way, in case you didn't know. One result was the secretary having a private email server and sending our top military secrets through it. This exposed our top military secrets to our enemies. It's likely China got everything, including special access program information. They used it to execute American spies in China making us blind in their nation. That's right, they killed all of them. It also means billions of defense intelligence spending wasted. Unthinkable. A president hoping to justify gun control and seizing guns in the U.S. initiated a program that forced U.S. gun sellers to approve obviously illegal straw purchases to drug dealers in hopes a massacre of civilians in Mexico would occur that could be blamed on the U.S. Unthinkable. A president demanded FBI files on his political opponents and kept them for months to look for things to prosecute and or possibly blackmail. Unthinkable. A pandemic bad enough to shut down the entire world's commerce was unthinkable just a few short years ago, and even though it didn't happen, elites were eager enough for just such a pandemic that they could, might, and if, be able to use to scare people into believing one was happening. A politicized Department of Justice and FBI conducted no-knock SWAT raids on elderly men accused of nothing more than process violations, then reinstated a lawyer who pleaded guilty to actual crimes simply because of the political sides these individuals are on. Unthinkable. Propagandists called violent riots with arson, looting, and more than a dozen people killed, mostly peaceful. Their politicized prosecutors released violent perpetrators, often without any bail demand and often without charges, to let them continue violent riots. Unthinkable. Dozens of teachers are on the TikTok app bragging about how they're already grooming kids into LGBTQ culture. And the tech overlords consider the only violation to be other people rebroadcasting their brags to try to warn the rest of us. Unthinkable. School systems cover up sexual assault and rape to avoid damaging narratives about transgender sexuality and illegal alien presence. When parents angrily demand accountability, the politicized DOJ and FBI call them domestic terrorists. 
unthinkable. The politicized DOJ and FBI failed to stop killings by known mentally disturbed and or radicalized individuals. Sometimes they help plan the violence. The implication is they prefer pushing gun control and calling conservatives terrorists to actually preventing crime. Unthinkable. In the desperate attempt to convict conservatives of being conservative, the politicized DOJ and FBI give immunity only to Democrats to testify only against Republican targets of things everyone is doing. The standard is clearly politicized justice at all levels. Unthinkable. We're well into unthinkable territory, folks. If you told people in 1992 that electing Bill Clinton would lead directly to the chaos and extensive erosion of the rule of law by Democrats that we see today, no one would believe you. We've come a long way, and it isn't good. So with Democrats eager to corrupt so-called criminal prosecution processes for their goals, willing to excuse violence and the worst betrayals of military security, for their preferred narrative, hoping for slaughter to get gun control. Why do you think they would balk at voter fraud? More accurately, since Democrats have been very successful at voter fraud at lower levels, Greg Warr's election to governor in Washington State, Al Franken's election to senator in Minnesota, Why is it unthinkable they finally made a push to do it at the national level? At the very least, a few things are undeniable. Number one, Democrat officials clearly took action to prevent GOP oversight of ballot counting. They used lies to do it some places. They lost lawsuits about their treatment of GOP poll watchers. Number two, they exploited COVID fears to push for mail-in voting. Mail-in voting undeniably allows multiple ways to vote fraudulently. Number three, in some states they clearly relaxed rules on signature matching and postmarks in the last stages of the election. Number four, we have audits and investigations that have discovered significant problems in Arizona, in Wisconsin, where the fraud was so bad they considered decertifying. In Georgia, where officials were fired for how bad their performance was. So, at the very least, or best, or worst, or minimum, depending upon your preferred perspective, All we're arguing about was, was the cheating enough? There's no room to argue whether there was cheating or even whether there was intent to cheat. Democrats inarguably intended to steal it. So, think the unthinkable. 
Let's discuss it. Let's openly talk about how we clean up our election processes so that it can never happen again. Let's trust the people to choose their representatives, even if they are people the elite don't like. Let's restore consent of the governed. Wow. That is just amazing. And I wish I knew this person's real name, but I guess he has a pretty good reason not, not to want his real name out there. And, you know, I, uh, I can't really blame him. Anyway, he goes by Gitabushi, and he's got a picture of something that looks like Pikachu from the Pokemon group. And that is today's tweet of the day, although it's a whole thread of tweets. Brought to you by RedRiverYourWay.com. We really appreciate Red River Your Way. If you're uh, looking for a vehicle, Mitch Ward will give you a good deal. He gave me a great deal. So we appreciate that. All right. Um, I guess on the next edition of the Doc Washburn Show, we're going to have uh, part four of the deep dive into the FBI because I feel like I've only scratched the surface. And every time we do it, I'm like, okay, we're giving, giving you more evidence that they are totally beyond redemption that they need to be completely dismantled. So more of that coming up. In the meantime, you've been listening to episode 223 of the all-new Doc Washburn Show. The views and opinions expressed on the Doc Washburn Show do not necessarily reflect those of our advertisers, but they love us and we love them. Today's program has been produced by Tim Terrible, directed by Mick Messy. This has been a terribly messy production. Portions of today's show will be taken overseas and dropped. If you'd like a transcript of today's episode of the all-new Doc Washburn Show, simply peel the roof off a Rolls-Royce panel truck and send it to Mansour's Computer Solutions, 7th floor of the Ephemeral B. Smooth Building, Whitehall, Arkansas, in care of Sheriff Mansour Sempier the 10th. That's the way it is. Wednesday, August 24th, 2022.